every generation there is a chosen podcast. It alone will analyze the subtext, the allegory, and the clever Whedon-esque dialogue. It is Conversations with Dead People. to Conversations with Dead People, a post-mortem podcast on the works of Joss Whedon. My name's Paul, I'm your host, and I'm typically joined by guests from the worlds of fandom and academia as we make our way through the critically acclaimed series Buffy the Vampire Slayer and its spin-off series Angel. Uh, and talking with me tonight is Eric Sippel, author of the uh, young adult fantasy novel Broken Magic, the critically acclaimed young adult fantasy novel broken magic and the and the upcoming mimesis which i suspect will also be critically acclaimed eric how are you doing i'm, I'm good thank you for that glowing uh, introduction it's good to be back yeah, it's good to have you back um this is only your second time here i know um, i didn't didn't as we talked last time i didn't jump in until the seasons i don't like so this is um <laughs> very very exciting well that's good you're challenging yourself it is. It's, like, it is. I, I it's like good it. to re-examine. I mean, I've already got you on the list for some angel stuff, so that's what I'm really here for. But no, yeah. I'm excited. This is actually, I this is the episode of the only episode of Buffy I asked for today, if I remember properly. I think so. so yeah. So yeah, excited to be here. Cool. Um, so we've done all sorts of projects together before. I mean, I just talked about the the books that you have and will be publishing. You're also my co-creator co-author co-editor on the deli counter of justice uh we've done we've done one regular ongoing podcast together um and you've been a frequent guest on my other podcast so yeah it's been a, a very long uh, creative partnership um and i uh, i was I actually thinking a little bit about um, uh, recently about um, some of the stuff that that uh, we've been hoping to plan for in the future. So mm-hmm. um, it's been it's good. Yeah. But I, this is um, this is definitely I think this is the one I've been involved with the least. So I'm glad I'm glad I finally got into repeat guest status on this so that I finish off the the, the circuit. So, well, we'll stuff. just we'll just have to load Angel up with simple appearances. Here we go. Just, just rack up the numbers there. We'll have to sipple saturate the angel run. <laughs> All right. Um, well, speaking of the, this is the only episode that you've requested. Um, this is, this is the most important episode of the series Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Why? Because it's the namesake of this podcast. We're talking about uh, episode seven of season seven, conversations with dead people. So when uh, I was putting this podcast together uh, initially uh, back when Arlo was still involved, when it was still technically going to be his show, we were trying to come up with what the damn podcast was going to be called. And we had about a half dozen possibilities. And I think everything had already been used. Like I think a couple of the names we wanted had had podcasts that had put out maybe one episode and then died, but I still didn't want to, use a name that had already been used so 
conversations with dead people seems like an obvious choice for a for a review podcast but uh it was the last one that i came to and i was stunned that it hadn't been snatched up yet so it's it's a good namesake it's interesting because it's it is not an unpopular episode of the show but probably doesn't rank be above 10 on most people's lists so right. Um, but it, but I think it's really good for um, I don't know it's a good post mortem since the show is a a post mortem show yeah I think conversations with dead people works and it is I think a sleeper a sleeper episode for the show in terms of quality so I'm I'm I think it's it's a good deep cut I, I know a lot of people consider it the best of season seven um, and my memory of season seven is shaky so I I don't know if I still feel that way but I know that I. In the back of my mind, I consider this the high watermark of season seven. So I guess, I guess we'll see as I get further into the season. <laughs> but uh, anyways, let me give the spoiler warning here in case anyone is tuning in for the first time for some reason. Uh, Conversations with Dead People, meaning the podcast, uh, is not a typical rewatch and review podcast. We're going to be exploring the plots, characters, and themes of each episode in depth and within the context of the series as a whole, which means we are going to spoil things. We're going to spoil everything about this episode. So if you haven't already watched Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and I recommend Angel the Series all the way through at least once, press pause, go, go get comfortable with both those shows, uh, and come back whenever you're ready. We'll still be here. And with that, uh, with that business taken care of, Eric, if you're ready, let's go to work. Let's do it. Man, I can't wait till I get all the way to the end of Angel and that line that I use, let's go to work, finally makes sense to people. <laughs> <laughs> Since the very first episode of this podcast, I've been teasing the end of Angel. <sighs> Anyways, all right, so episode 707, Conversations with Dead People. Um, I'll throw to you first, Eric. What are your thoughts on this episode? Yeah, I mean, so I think, you know, generally my feelings on this episode, I, I remember loving this when it came out. Um, and in retrospect, my my feelings on it, have, like my, my love of it has continued um, despite my, my actually fairly sour feelings on season seven. Um, but looking back, you know, I was watching it today. I was thinking about the place that it serves in the show. And it... I feel like this is actually pretty common with shows, and I think Conversation with Dead People fits into the mold of, you know, some shows when they've gone on too long, they have a couple of weak seasons at the end, but they just manage this one last flare of brilliance mm -hmm. in the middle of it, and, it's, and it feels like at the moment, like, they've actually recaptured the show. Like, it's going to get back on track. This is it. The show's back to its best mode again. But really, they just sort of had this one amazing, like, moment that's still classic. Uh, and I kind of feel like that's it. This episode is maybe the last episode of the show to pull off one of I, what I think this show's best strengths was, which were, like, f formal experiments in the in the episodic structure. You know, like, like they we had, you know, um, uh, Hush and Once More with Feeling – um, the the body, these kinds of shows that actually broke not just the mold of what you'd normally get on television, but were very much mold breakers for the structure of the show itself. And Conversations with Dead People was like the last one of those. Um, with I mean, right from the beginning, it kicks off with um, like the band setting up, and then you know, and then kicking into a structure that's just not like the show normally. So I think it's really interesting that it's the last one of those in the show. It's also 
only this it, it's only the second episode in the entire series that features a uh title stamp like at the top of the episode you know i almost mentioned that and then i was like you know what i might be wrong about that but when the title came up i was like i think this is different i I feel like this is different i I think once more with feeling and this are the only two episodes that ever did it all right so yeah it's it really you know right from the beginning it kind of it marks itself as a show episode that's going to do something different um and and i always appreciated that about buffy and i think you know this show this episode isn't isn't as bold and thus not quite as classic as the other ones that I mentioned, but I think it deserves conversation amongst them for, for really playing with the structure in a way that got at something um, really kind of emotionally powerful for the show. Yeah, I agree. Um, Also at the top of the show, another weird thing that it does that I don't, I don't know. I don't remember if any other Buffy ever did this. If any other Buffy had a, a time and date stamp at the top of the episode, but the oh yeah the, it, it drops a time it drops like 801 or something like that right yeah, at the start yeah it's it says november 12th uh i don't remember if it gives a year i think it just says november 12th but then it says 801 p.m and so i'd forgotten that and so i watched the entire episode expecting you know are we are we going to keep getting timestamps? like is this significant i didn't remember if there was a a ticking clock in this episode which there isn't and we never get another timestamp again so i was like trying to figure out why they did that and apparently the writers wanted this episode to feel like it took place in real time and i don't know if what they meant by that is that all the events actually span just one hour but the significance of the date and the time is this this episode originally aired november 12th 2002 and they said they put the timestamp on there of 801 because you know you were just about one minute into the episode so like that timestamp was supposed to reflect the day and time that people were actually watching the episode for the first time that's you know my my read on why they dropped that was pretty much what you described which is that it's really important that these are all happening simultaneously because it's very much about isolating characters in individual conversations. Um, And, you know, like there's stuff later on where Dawn's trying to call Buffy and can't because her own stuff is going on. So it all happening in a simultaneous run of time. And the fact that it's basically happening over a single conversation between Buffy and a vampire um, shows that it has to be a really compressed time period. But I didn't realize that they had, I I had forgotten this used to be an eight o'clock show, which is why they used eight Oh one. So that's interesting. Um, Yeah, that was interesting. So the, um, and then of course, another thing that is different about this episode from most is that the sort of musical montage that they usually use to wrap up like very special episodes of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Uh, this one starts like the, the cold open of this is the, the musical montage with, um, Angie Hart performing the song blue, which I guess was co-written with Joss, Joss Whedon. Oh, really? That's the song that plays over it was co-written with them? Uh-huh, I didn't yeah, know that. Yeah. Uh, and it features the one of the lyrics, one of the repeated lyrics is, Can I spend the night alone? And, you know, I think that's obviously significant because as you pointed out, the uh, we're going to break this down by conversation. And each conversation, each little sort of vignette uh, has the characters, has our main characters um, separated from everybody else. 
for the most part. I could argue actually that the the Jonathan and Andrew also is Jonathan alone, but uh, we'll get to that. I have one other one other thing that I tell me if I'm right about this. I, I didn't get a chance to look this up to confirm this, but I feel like I remember this reading this before, which is that one other thing that's different is did each of the conversations have a different writer? Yes. Were there so each of the conversations was like one of the Buffy writers taking over that thread. Yes. So the credited writers are Jane Espenson and Drew Goddard. Um, but there were there was scheduling stuff that messed up the episode. Um so obviously there's the Willow and Cassie conversation that happens. And that was originally written to be Tara. It was supposed to be Amber Benson uh, coming in to reprise Tara for that scene. But there, there are two conflicting reports on why that didn't happen. One says that she, that, that um, uh, Amber Benson was busy in England at the time and couldn't, uh, couldn't make the schedule work. And the other, which has come from Amber herself, is that uh, she didn't want to come back and portray Tara as bad. Like she didn't want, she didn't want to come back and and put a bad spin on Tara, basically. So she chose not to come back. But um, at any rate, what that meant is that that entire scene had to be rewritten, and so they gave that scene to. So how it breaks down is Jane Espenson wrote the Dawn scenes. Uh, Drew Goddard wrote the Jonathan and Andrew stuff. Um, Marty Noxon came in and did a rewrite on the Willow stuff to put um, to put Cassie in there. And uh, Joss did the Buffy and Holden conversation. Interesting. Okay, so yeah, I knew I because I, I knew that Marty was um, was was listed as uncredited when I was looking on IMDb at this. The the Amber Benson thing is really interesting because, you know, I'm I, I had heard the the same thing you said that she had said that she didn't want Tara to be portrayed that way, and it's interesting because on on I actually totally understand why she felt that way that like having the last impression of that character be that mm-hmm. um, would kind of suck, you know. I mean, like, but on the other hand, it, it's while I think the episode works anyways. It is the most glaring weak point of this episode and more than anything makes no sense that the first evil would um, do that, you know, would like not take Tara's form. There's just no reason. Yeah. So I've I've jumped through all sorts of mental hoops. So I've rewatched this episode three times in the last week uh, just for taking my notes and and wrapping my head around it. And I've really worked pretty hard in my head to find a way to like outside of the meta stuff to find a way to rationalize why that scene happens the way it does. And, you know, I, I could, I could twist myself. I could bend enough to, you know, sort of reason that maybe that either the first could for some reason, like maybe Tara somehow managed to resist the first adopting her form. That would be weird since I as far as we know, nobody else is able to do that or that the first genuinely thought that, uh, I mean, it, she does say he, she, it does say, Oh, so the, so the suicide thing was, was too far, huh? Shame. I thought you were, I thought you were ripe for that. Maybe it thought the Tara thing was also too far. I don't know. Yeah. That's actually my read is that the first, maybe rightly believed that, um, Willow would see through the deception. 
yeah. if Terra was actually there, that someone speaking for Terra um, would mask the the difference, but that Willow would be in tune enough to uh, to know it wasn't really Terra, which I actually kind of believe. I mean, there are limits. You know, the the first isn't the person who's dead. You know, like the first yeah. adopts their form, but I think the read on the first, the rest of the time, is not that the first actually um, becomes them in a in a meaningful way. Like I get the feeling the first has their memories and such. Maybe yeah. I'm, I'm actually a little fuzzy on that, but I feel like they know the first knows enough about them to replicate them fairly well, but is not them. Yeah. So I think that and of, of everyone, you know, it's one thing to come over and betray, you know, portray a friend, but to portray the, you know, the love of Willow's life and someone that she was that in tune with. Uh, and then actually had cast spells together, which meant that they probably had communed, you know, on some spiritual level, right? Beyond, um, beyond the normal, the normal mortal um, relationship. So I could see how maybe the first was that. I kind of wish that, that we ever got it. I wish that somewhere in the show they had just give lampshaded that yeah. somehow. Yeah. Because um, I think it is, but it's definitely it's one of those things. You know how like intellectually you have a weakness with an episode, but as it's portrayed, it works really well anyway. So it doesn't matter as much in the moment. That's kind of how I always felt about that. Yeah, I, I've on my first rewatch, I was I knew it happened. I knew that that scene was going to take place and that uh, it should have been Tara. And so on my first rewatch, I, it really bothered me. But I've I've kind of made my peace with it. Also, you could you could argue that um, the first appearing as Cassie and saying, you know, I'm I'm here. She asked me to talk to you and Willow saying, well, why can't why can't I talk to her? You know, why can't I talk to her allows the first to plant one more guilt trip on Tara, like gets one extra dig in there by saying, well, you killed a bunch of people, so you don't get to talk to her. Those are just the rules. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's fair because that is part of the play. The first ultimately makes in trying to get her to kill herself is it's like you're damaged. You, you can't come back from it. Um, so yeah, I think, I think, I think it works more than it should ultimately. Yeah. I mean, like I said, it's the, the, I mean, actually I would say the biggest problem with it is, and I, you know, I think we'll, we'll I'll probably come back to this theme a number of times while we're talking about this episode, but, um, the first is very poorly portrayed as a villain from this point out. The, the, <laughs> yeah. the first is terrifying in this episode, like absolutely unsettling villain, like shows itself as maybe the most terrifying villain that she's faced because it's so personal and psychological. Um, but the, the first is a blunt instrument from here on out. Um, it never really tries to deceive. It just kind of takes people's forms to fuck with them. You know, like it doesn't really, um, it doesn't really go, Oh my God, hold on. Can I re-say that? We're not supposed to swear on the show. I remember you telling me this is PG 13. No, I've let, I've let that go. It's, it's fine. <laughs> okay. Sorry. Um, no. So, you know, it's like it's really like, you know, it, it, it's not a canny villain from here on out. But but in this, you know, it's it's that that kind of subtle manipulation is like very present and, and kind of scary. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that was the first conversation right there. The titular there are four titular conversations and the Willie Cassie, the Willow Cassie one was the first one on my list. I'm trying to think if there's anything else that happens in that, that we should discuss. I mean, I, 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 I like the fact that it does, that the first actually does push just a little too far and that Willow catches on. Yeah. You know, this is actually something that I feel like 
Um, I, you know, I, I talk a lot about having villains that are too powerful and um, too indestructible right up until the last moment when there's like a magic weakness that you beat them. And I think the show falls into a little bit of that with the first later um, and just generally like it's, you know, it's minions and everything. But in this moment, I like it because it shows that the first evil is immensely powerful and very scary, but not infallible. Yeah. You know, it's not it's not perfect. It can't. It, it can't just magic up everything that it wants and manipulate everyone and with just like the will to do so. And I like that it has, it, it has a weakness in this. It, it, it oversteps it, it, it games it out as best it can, but can't quite pull it off. Yeah. But, um, but so I have a, so I'm curious, I, I missed the, epi- I can't remember what episode Cassie first shows up in. It's like two or three this season, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and maybe you, I'm curious if this came up in the things I didn't get a chance to listen to the episode before this, but um, it, Cassie's definitely got like a Luna love good thing going on, right? Like <laughs> that's, I feel like it's intentional. Uh, that did not, I don't remember anybody specifically calling that out, but I'm I'm glad to bring the juice here for that one. There, anyway, she's always she's always struck me as sort of like older Luna Lovegood in her uh, overall presentation. But I've always liked Cassie. I thought she was a pretty cool character, and I, I wish we had gotten more of her. Yeah, um, yeah. Which is another reason why I kind of make my peace with her filling in for Tara. That uh, I, I really was very fond of Cassie in her one and only episode. So it, it was nice to get her back, even if just for a moment. Yeah. And, and, you know, before we move on to another conversation, I, 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 I don't want to miss saying how good Allison Hannigan is mm-hmm. in this scene. I mean, she anchors everything, especially since it's not Tara. The big thing that happens because it's just sort of like a character we've seen once is everything's got to be carried by Allison Hannigan. Like Willow has to carry the emotions of the scene. Um, and I think this is one of one of her better performances. And she does, she doesn't really overplay anything. She doesn't go too big or too far with anything but she is very unsettled and very unhappy this entire time and i'm not a huge fan of post magic crazy willow generally Mm -hmm. but i think she really lands the plane on this one she i mean she does the best with what she's given it's interesting i hadn't thought about this until right now but of the four little conversation vignettes that we get technically five if you count spike but we'll talk about that um the Willow Cassie one is the only one that is it like a talking heads. Yeah. There's thing. no walking. There's there, no, there's no action involved. Yeah. Yeah. That's um, interesting. You're right. It's just, it's just literally them sitting at a table the it, entire time. Yeah. And because of that, it could have been like super boring or unengaging or whatever, but Alison Hannigan, you know, when she's called upon to emote, she does a phenomenal job. And so I, I, you know, she brought the pain in that scene and I appreciated it. You know what does suck at this though? This is like maybe the sign that the first evil was going to become a really crappy villain is the end when Cassie disappears and like smiles a weird smile and like, like its mouth eats itself. Yeah. Like, folds inside out. Yeah. It's not actually a bad concept, you know, like I think like separate from the scene, but it's just, I don't know. Like this actually, maybe this actually speaks to my problem with the first going forward, which is that it's kind of dumb evil ultimately. <laughs> yes. And like, like it, doesn't that kind of just totally undermine its entire game? Like, oh, okay, never mind. Not only is it kind of evil, it's literally a scary evil demon thing that just absorbed itself. Like there was a way for the first evil to exit that moment in a way that still kept its like 
its sense kind of mysterious and unsettling and would keep questions. But once you watch it like Cthulhu itself out the door, <laughs> you know, you can pretty much throw away everything that it said. I, I hadn't thought of it in those terms. I, um, I watched that and I was like, oh, that's really kind of a cool idea that she like folds herself inside out and, and eats herself or whatever. I just didn't think it looked particularly good. Like this, <laughs> this show has, you know, does what it can with its budget and, and sometimes it doesn't pull it off very well. And I thought that effect was, was better in idea than it was in, uh, you know, on camera. But I agree with you now thinking about it, it would have been a lot more chilling and a lot more uh, threatening if Cassie had said the line, oh, not it, uh, you know, Willow says, from beneath you it devours, and Cassie says, not it, me. And then just, like, either either just disappeared, didn't do anything fancy or flashy or whatever, just disappeared, or then just walked out of the library. Yeah, actually, given that she kind of came in from around the bookshelves, I kind of wish she had exited the way she came in yeah. um, and, and like, settled that line, because then it, yeah, but... Um, but yes, you're, and you're right about the effects. I mean, Buffy's had a, has a troubled relationship <laughs> with, um, visual effects, um, yeah. <laughs> through its life. Um, it's, it's makeup effect. It's, it's, you know, it's interesting actually, like, I feel like angels generally makeup effects uh, were pretty good and Buffy had it sort of like a little more intermittently. Yeah. Um, although some of that might not be fair. Buffy was a much more brightly lit show than angel. True. Um, and it is a little easier to get away with some types of effects when you have shadow to work with. And, um, you know, Buffy has a lot of like very like flat, bright lighting. Good, so good point. Yeah. Angel, angel is a noir series by design. And uh, Buffy is set in Sunnydale of all places. So. Yes, but but very good scene, good conversation. Um, I would say like a solid um, uh, A minus conversation with dead people. <laughs> okay, we're gonna rate each one. Um, <laughs> all right, well let's go to. Uh, I was gonna go to Dawn next. Who do you want to talk about next? Let, let's hold the Holden one. Not the only my only request because it's, it's good. Um, let's let's go to Dawn. Dawn's okay. good. That's Dawn's pretty easy. So. So my biggest question to you uh, about this, well, first I'll comment that um, I I have always been a Michelle Trachtenberg fan. I defend Dawn more than most people do. Um, and her scenes, uh, we get both an example of the Dawn that I really like and defend and an example of the dawn that other people hate so much that actually kind of even graded on me. And it's when she, anytime she screams, there, there's <laughs> so many people claimed to dislike dawn because she was shrill and shrieky. And I never really, I, I kind of roll my eyes at that. But in this particular scene, when she screams and like when she has to shout, when she has to scream the incantation over all the noise that the, the ghost is making or whatever she does get a little shrieky and i do kind of go oh that was irritating i mean i i i think michelle trachtenberg has a a pretty solid horror movie scream yeah. generally yeah. i think that um she deserves some slasher films with that scream but yeah. um but but yes there's a lot of it and i guess i do get that um I'm I'm also a Dawn defender, so you're you're in, in uh, safe company here. Cool. Um, standing up for Dawn, I I've always thought that she's got a got a bum rap, and I like I like Michelle Trachtenberg, and um, I actually think this episode 
shows a lot of what I think Don's strengths are as a character um you know which is you know a her just kind of being left alone which is sort mm-hmm. of the the great trial of dawn is that you know she's like you know what it would be like to be the younger sister of the slayer and then also not have a mom now right um and just getting kind of like left alone i um you know and i think it plays well to all that and also just really digs into her traumas in a good way in this episode in this episode so i think this really uses dawn super well um and you said this was espenson right espenson took the dawn yes. Don section yes yeah when you said that i was like oh yeah yeah okay this makes sense this is espenson <laughs> um yeah i was gonna say i was gonna say i always think of espenson as the comedy writer and she absolutely is she's she anytime she gets to write witty dialogue she knocks it out of the park um and i was trying to remember if there's anything witty uh, in this and there is like her all the stuff with her first coming home when she's by herself and she finds oh. the money and she's dancing to the music and she's microwaving a marshmallow and eating anchovy like singing a song to the anchovies on her pizza like that's all oh, yeah that's all oh, the, an- the anchovies song is is classic yeah so one of one of the all-time great moments in buffy in yeah my opinion. i really like that and then the other one is when she uh gets the pizza she's obviously stealing <laughs> Buffy's clothes and she gets the pizza on the shirt. And at first she's like really upset. And she's like, eh, she'll think it's blood. <laughs> it's, you know, it's, this is actually when I said like, you know, I was like saying earlier that, you know, sometimes you have these episodes that kind of return the show to form and like come back to its best strengths, even though the show can't maintain it. Um, and I think this scene is a good, maybe the best example of that because you get that, that very particular overlap between genre um, hero quest and real world nonsense. Uh-huh. Um, and so you get the sort of real world level of like the little sister of the slayer, like, Oh, she'll think it's blood on that thing. Or like shooting her crossbow into the wall and then trying to hide <laughs> it, which is, you know, like damaging the house and then trying to hide it with a plant is a very normal kid thing to do, but yep. it's with a crossbow because she's the slayer. So I think this, this is like Buffy at its best in like merging suburban life and, um, and monster hunting. Um, this scene is like pretty, pretty right in the zone for what Buffy was always good at. Yeah, I agree. It also gives Dawn. Oh, first I wanted to point out the, the season opened with Dawn going to school and making, I think it was in the first episode of the season when she, uh, met the, that the two kids at, uh, Sunnydale high that we thought were going to turn out to be her own Scooby gang. Yeah, uh, Kit and I don't remember, uh, rem- I don't remember the guy's name. But anyways, those characters never pop up again. So they obviously decided not to follow through on the whole Dawn the Vampire Slayer and her own Scooby Gang thing. But Kit is who she's talking to on the phone. So yeah, I remember, yeah, I was wondering like they she mentioned a name and I was like, is this one of the people? I actually think that was a missed opportunity to not go through. I know. with the sort of Dawn having her own friend group. I'm, I'm wondering what stopped that. It might have just been, I mean, I don't really remember the characters or the actors very well, so maybe they were just like, these people can't hold it um, and backed off of it on an acting or, like, you know, just overall, like they mucked up the execution and decided to back off from it before it went too far, but I thought that was a good idea and I kind of wish they had gone that way. I agree. I, I feel like there's a missed opportunity. I feel like it could have been incorporated into the rest of the season. Um like alongside the potentials. I mean, we're about to get, and, and maybe that's maybe the number of potentials that they wanted to bring in. Maybe they just decided that was already too much to handle and they didn't need to add two more characters to the mix. But I, I thought it would have been fun to have 
Buffy and the Scoobies dealing with the potentials and then Dawn having her own circle of friends that she's trying to integrate into this. I, you know, and I think there actually maybe was an opportunity and we're going to get, I'll probably talk a little bit about more about this when we get to the um, Jonathan Andrew um, arc, but um, you know, I, they, they try to, they, you know, later on in the season, a common complaint is that Andrew becomes the Xander uh-huh. of the group. Um, and I, I think that there would have been a better opportunity for one of Don's friends to become the Xander of the group. Um, especially like, I think you could have echoed it more. It would have been a more interesting echo of like, you know, someone in Don Scooby gang supplanting Xander's yeah. place, I think would have been an interesting play in a way that Andrew becoming that didn't, wasn't really that, even though I don't hate Andrew, I don't hate Andrew, but it was a weird choice. And I think it did. wasn't, wasn't great in what it did and this episode is a reason for that but yeah definitely missed opportunity i do appreciate that she's at least talking to a friend yeah. on the phone um, although this does do one of those things that always irritates me in in um television which is where like obviously like licensing costs means they can't get new movies to put on the tv so it's always <laughs> some teenager watching some like 1950s horror movie uh-huh. which not to say they never do but i mean come on like that's not what Don's going to be watching on well, TV right now. I don't buy it for a second. I I did well. I I don't know because I liked the. I feel like this is an example of the Espenson humor where it becomes clear that uh, she and Kit are watching two different things. And from context clues, I I expect Kit was watching like you've got mail or something. It was something with Tom Hanks because oh yeah, that's right. She makes a Tom Hanks comment. She's like, "What are you talking about? This isn't Tom Hanks. Wait, what channel are you on?" <laughs> and so. Um, I don't know. I, I I think it's kind of funny to imagine that they agreed we were going to watch, you know, we'll talk on the phone while we watch something. And uh, a comedy of errors leads to Kit pulling up, you know, uh, a, romant- a rom-com with uh, Tom Hanks. And Dawn, because she's been raised in a house with a slayer, just naturally goes to a some horror, 50s horror movie. But Okay. That's a, that's a pretty good that's a pretty good explanation. I I can I can buy into this. <laughs> but anyways, um okay, so the the big question I have about the dawn conversation and again, I don't I really don't have a clear impression of most of the stuff that goes on in the rest of the season. So, this may actually be addressed. Um but I don't remember it. The I feel like there's been debate about whether that is actually Joyce or if it's the first pulling a fast one. And so, so I want to get your take and I feel like I've found the official answer, but I want to get your take on it. I, I want to be upfront that I found the official answer too. Oh, okay. Um, okay. And so I have it, but I'll tell you what my take was before I looked, which is that it is the first, um, and the reason being that Joyce would not show up and tell Don that Buffy won't choose her. Yeah. Like, I just, I can't, you know, even if that was Joyce's opinion, I cannot imagine that she would deliver the message that way. Right. So, um, I, you know, I do, I don't like that. I think it's confusing that she shows up like shrouded in light because I don't think that's something the first ever does again. I don't think it creates light shows or magic shows. It can just appear as dead people. Uh, maybe I'm wrong about that. So if I'm wrong, I, I'd love a correction later. But I don't remember it having that power other than other than this exact moment. Yeah, you're right. I don't remember. I, I guess as I was watching that scene, I was like, uh, OK, so so the official answer is Jane Espenson, I guess, on the commentary uh, for this episode, confirmed that that was supposed to be the first. 
that that was not Joyce. It was actually the first. Um, it's like there's a line. I, I'm, I'm having trouble finding it, but there's a line where um, she there's like a first pun in in what she says. I'll see if I can find it. But um, oh, I think that was uh, so. Originally, the plan for that scene was they were going to have Dawn uh, try and summon the spirit of her mother. And oh yeah, yes, and and then it was they were and jo- and Dawn was going to say they could they said I couldn't bring someone back and they were just going to say well maybe I'm the first that's right. what it was yeah 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 which would have been yeah. which would have been a great line especially since at this point we still haven't heard it referred to that referred as that yeah you're right um and and I I would I do miss that line although I'm glad they dropped um that idea of her trying to summon Joyce because she'd already done that yeah in exactly an episode. exactly um, I do like but, the fact that we get to see. Dawn, um, like t- taking care of herself. I mean, she's obviously picked up enough from being raised for a year or two by Willow and Tara. She's picked up enough of the old uh, magic text reading that she could pull that off on her own. So, yeah, I, you know, overall, I think this is on the uh, one of the weaker of the conversations um in terms of its impact although i think it's really effective and how in up to that point i don't think the impact of joyce giving that buffy won't choose you thing is particularly good it's it's cryptic it's it does i don't know i don't think it really lands and i don't i don't to be honest i don't even remember if it pays off that was that was going to be my question i honestly have no recollection of if that actually leads to anything if it pays off, I can only imagine that it doesn't pay off with anything all that great because I would think I would remember it uh, yeah. at least a little bit if it had. But um, so I don't I don't think it pays off particularly well or at least not memorably so. And it's like it's cryptic and, and sort of nonsensy. It doesn't feel like something Joyce would say. None of that really, really works particularly well. But all the haunted house stuff up to that point is extremely good. It's actually one of the best uh, Buffy didn't go to the haunted house well all that often. I think it's only like about, I don't know, maybe three or four episodes where they played with the haunted house kind of idea. Yeah. Um, uh, but this was actually like a really good classic haunted house sequence. Yeah, I agree. Um, um oh, go ahead. anything else about Dawn? Uh, no, not really. I mean, this one, this one's kind of, um, it's a little bit forgettable in the episode, mostly because it gets overshadowed by a couple of other good, good scenes. It's neither the worst nor the best of the things. So yeah. I'm going to call this uh, um, a B minus conversation <laughs> with dead people. Um, but with but with but the but the lead up is good. So <laughs> okay, I I had already forgotten we were giving grades <laughs> to each one. Um, all right, so you said you want to hold on to the Buffy Holden thing. So let's go to Andrew and Jonathan next. This one's the rough one. I'm not a fan of this one. Oh yeah, yeah. It, bunch I, of reasons. Um, I, I mean, I'm not a fan of it because I've been. I, Jonathan's my boy, and I've been defending him since the start of this whole podcast project, and it still upsets me to this day that he's the one that died, and that Andrew is the one that gets to stick around and try to replace mm-hmm. Xander. Uh, yeah, another case where Jonathan as the replacement Xander would have been better. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm, there's a, there are, this one doesn't work on a bunch of levels for me. Um, yeah, this is actually one I remember liking the first time through a lot more than I like now. Um, I because the, because Jonathan's funny, you know the the nerd humor kind of works better in the scene than um, than in a lot, some of the other times. Um, the 
um, you know, it, Warren showing up is is effective. Yeah, it does have one of the uh, one of the laugh out loud moments for me. Which when, is is it is it the uh, there is another one or is it a different one? No, that was amusing. But the one that I actually where I like actually legitimately LOL'd was when Andrew falls down on the rope. Yes. Yes. So. That was good. Um, and actually the, the, there's the other thing, which is um, Andrew trying to uh, speak Spanish with the, <laughs> from beneath you devours. And it's like, it eats you starting from the bottom or something. Starting like that. with your bottom. Yeah. <laughs> so um, there's, there's a bunch of like good stuff. Like it's, it is, this is like well constructed, but ultimately, it's like two or three things that I just don't like. One is I don't like Andrew in the first place all that much. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, like I said, I don't hate him. He has his moments. I think Lank, what's his first name? Tom. Tom Lank. Tom Lank, I think worked. I think he's great. I think Tom Lank is awesome. Yeah. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with Andrew from the acting front. I just think that he's neither as sinister and scary as as um, Warren nor is he as good as Jonathan. So he just kind of comes off as like a wormy replacement for Jonathan. Yeah. He, he um, worked as a character in the trio, not as a standalone. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and ultimately like, this is another thing that I just don't think the payoff is particularly good on. Um, you know, it, it, a like him stabbing Jonathan is a, is kind of an okay shock moment, but he bleeds all over the, the symbol. But if I remember properly, then like the next episode, he's like, Jonathan was anemic, so it didn't work or something. Like oh, I didn't I, remember that. That's I, lame. I feel, I feel it's a remi- I'm curious when you get to the next episode. I might be misremembering this a little bit, but I feel like there's like an anemia joke about Jonathan and how it didn't work as well as it should have or something like that. Um, so I feel like this doesn't really have whatever it is. I mean, it doesn't really pay off as like the first coming back or anything, you know, like so it, it's kind of a mediocre payoff. If I recall getting rid of Jonathan sucks. This is not a great ending for Jonathan. Yeah. Like it's not thematically on point. It's just kind of mean. And to be honest, I feel like that's a problem with late, late Buffy overall. Yeah. I um, also, I also don't think it was as powerful. And I'm saying this as someone who adores Jonathan and I'm super upset that they killed him off, especially if it turns out that it was for nothing, <laughs> but um, just the moment, like when he actually gets stabbed, he gets, you know, for a brief second, he gets to see Warren. So he has that shocked look on his face and then he gets stabbed. And I think the music kicks back in at that point. I think that's when they bring the, the song from the opening back. So they're trying to add some musical emotion, <laughs> some, some emotional manipulation to us right there. But I don't know. It's just the, the sort of cinematic uh, method of of delivering a shocking scene like that. It didn't pay off for me. Like, yeah, yeah. It's not. It's actually not a good death. Yeah. By the way, I did look it up, and yes, I'm correct about the anemia thing. It's not the blood isn't sufficient to open the seal because of his anemia. Oh, great. So it it doesn't pay off for anything. And then the other problem is, I'll be honest. I kind of feel like this is an unforgivable sin for Jonathan, you know, for Andrew rather, you know, maybe you could argue that Andrew could come back from season six's stuff. Although he was actually a mean little shit in <laughs> season six. Yeah. Um, but maybe he could come back, but after he kills Jonathan for them to try to turn him into a hero after this, I mean, it kind of works only on the strength of, of the actor's abilities, but it, this is kind of a, a big thing to pull him back from. Um, whereas Jonathan was very redeemable. And I'm going to guess that they 
debated in the writer's room that they wanted to use Jonathan for the redemption thing. And then we're like, well, that's too obvious. Everyone will want it. Let's have let's really make the audience work for it and go with Andrew. And I think it's really endemic of the kinds of problems that Buffy had in season six and seven. I, I think it's also super unfortunate that that conversation they were having about like which one of them dies and which one do we redeem? The, probably the deciding factor was they were like, and if we kill Jonathan right here, that'll be a super like shocking gasp out loud moment. That'll really upset the fans or whatever. And as we've just said, it wasn't all that shocking. I mean, it did upset me, but it wasn't all that shocking. And obviously it doesn't really pay off. So, yeah. Yeah. I, it's interesting you know, as we start talking about all these like things that don't, we're not done. I think talking about things that don't pay off from this episode, it really does go back to like my earlier feelings of this episode, which is that in isolation, this is a phenomenal episode, but it doesn't actually portend a return to form for Buffy. And in a lot of ways, even by the end of the episode, it's already sliding back to the 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 mediocre to poor decision making that made up season seven. Like it it, it doesn't it doesn't set up great things in the future nothing in this episode really sets up anything great in the future to be honest um it's all just good in the moment it's a really good episode that doesn't ultimately pay off for anything and the next conversation that we're about to get to uh i think is the biggest reason why this episode is is remembered so fondly um yes yes should i rate should i grade this one before we move on yeah but well but before you do that i just wanted to say because i i had promised i would be able to uh, explain how the Andrew and Jonathan one was also a an alone thing. Oh, yeah, 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 that's right. Um, I feel like because they reveal that Andrew is in secret conversation with the quote-unquote ghost of Warren um, the whole time, that in effect, this is actually Jonathan alone. It's actually Jonathan himself uh, with Andrew slash Warren as the the other person that he's in conversation with. Um, That's I like, I like that argument. That's good. Um, and, and, you know, it actually puts me in the headspace of the, maybe the one emotional moment of this that does work. So I'm going to give the scene, the sequence it's due. And um, you said this was Goddard, right? Yeah. Wrote this. Yeah. So Goddard nails one very important moment, which is they make a joke earlier about like, they're going to do this thing. They're going to redeem themselves. And maybe, maybe they'll get to hang out at Buffy's house. And then when they like do their like little sound check and they start walking away, Jonathan calls back to Andrew and he's like, do you really think they'll let us hang out with them? And Andrew just kind of shrugs. Yeah. And I think that's a really it's both like sad and kind of potent in the moment. But in retrospect of the fact that he's going to kill Jonathan actually makes that scene even sadder. So I think that's the one moment that lands in this in this idea. Yeah. All right. Go ahead. What what do you grade it? Oh, this one's a tough one, but I'm going to. I'm going to have to call this a, like a D plus conversation with dead people. It's it, it, it has its moments, but ultimately it doesn't add up. And now that I found out the anemia thing does even doesn't even happen. I just, I got I got to dock it. I, I was going to go with like a CC minus until I remembered the anemia thing. That's fair. That's fair. I, um, I don't know. I have, I haven't been grading these so far, but I probably would do a C minus just because I, I would bump it up just a little bit because I did like the, uh, the star Wars, you know, that boy is our, last hope yes. no there is another wait who's our who's our last hope no i was just doing a thing it's <laughs> it, that's a, that scene is really good honestly one thing to be clear about in my grades 
I am grading it relative to each other. This was not like a D plus ep- you know, right. This would not be a D plus scene in a bad ep- in, of a bad episode of of Buffy. It's right. just in 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 contrast. But yes, I think a right. C minus would also be fair given that. Okay. All right. Well, let's move on to the the biggie. Should we Joe? Should we talk a little bit about Spike? Although I guess it kind of. Do we, are we going to do a separate thing for Spike, or should we just talk about Spike in context of this scene? I do have him separated out, but I only have one thing to say about it. But we can do that. So I, I'd been saying there are four conversations here, but five if we count Spike. Um, Spike's whole thing is silent. So I mean, it is technically one of the conversations, but we don't ever get to hear what the conversation is. Um, and I thought it was interesting in that the most prominent dead person on the main cast gets no audible conversation. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, yeah, it's good. This is, I'm not, I'm not a fan of this sequence only begin because of how it pays off. Although I think it's actually really effective in the episode. Um, the use of this, cause it's not clear where, where it's going. Right. Um, and it lines up really well with the ending payoff of the final conversation of revealing, you know, that, that spike is, is killing people mm-hmm. again. Um, on the other hand, this is yet another storyline that the payoff sucks on. I hate sleeper agent spike <laughs> a lot. Yeah. I, I am not a fan of the storyline. I think it, it adds nothing to the series. It has that really obnoxious thing the rest of the season where he's like, there's like a trigger song, like really like generic, terrible crap the rest of the way out with Spike. And I think it really hurts Spike's redemption arc because instead of it really dealing with his redemption, it's just dealing with him being programmed, Yeah. Um, which I, I just don't like anything about the Spike arc through this season. But as and again, as like to keep with the theme of this episode, as a moment and a reveal, it works. It yeah. really works in the context of this episode. Yes, I, I agree with all of that. I agree that in in the context of this episode, I thought it was really cool that um, well, like I said, the conversations with dead people. Here's the dead person on ca- on, on the main cast, and he doesn't get a conversation. Um, and yeah, just the way that was all threaded through uh, the background of all the other stories being told. Uh, yeah, it, you know, in context here, I I thought it worked. I also cannot stand uh, at least what I remember. And and if I remember anything about season seven, <laughs> it's the it's the arc that they give Spike, obviously. And uh, yeah, I'm not a huge fan of basically anything that they they do with Spike. I feel like I feel like they had a lot of great plans. I know I know endings are hard. I feel like they had a lot of great ideas for stuff that they could do picking up after season six. And so much of it was crammed in or muddled or not given enough time or whatever into this final season. Um, like the idea of when, when they were sitting down and breaking the idea of, okay, the big bad for the final season is going to be the first evil. And what does he do? He can manifest as any character who's ever died or whatever. And we can do they, he can play all kinds of head games. I mean, that's what this episode is, is him playing head games with everybody. If that had been, if they'd been able to play with that over the full course of a season, I think it would have paid off more. And just the notion that, all of the things that he could do. Apparently he has the ability to control the undead, which raises the question of, is he controlling Holden? But we'll get to that. 
Um, like, I, there's just so many things that he could have done over the course of a season, or maybe even two seasons, that I think would have been more effective than the way that they're just sort of tossed out and, and rushed. You know, there's, I feel like there's two, there's a couple different modes of late show failure seasons, you know, and this is pretty common with shows that go too long and that start floundering near the end. And I think it's interesting because season six and seven are two of the versions. Season six is um, a thematic misstep of mm-hmm. a season. It's actually not bad. There's a lot of good stuff. In I, season six. I came out of my, my revisit of season six, uh, kinder to it than I remembered, but it's still not my favorite season. Yeah. It's just, you know, I, the idea of making it dark, of making it darker in Buffy's adulthood is an interesting one, but it ultimately doesn't match up with the show's tone well enough. And so it's not so much that it's bad, but it's kind of a thematic misstep. Season seven feels like an overreaction to, uh, to season six's perceived failures. Um, it's kind of the, you know, attack of the clones to the Phantom Menace, um, where it feels like they realized they had misstepped and then tried to spin up all of these bold ideas for season seven. Um, and, and ultimately like it's, it kind of, it, they, none of it ended up working. It's actually worse because it's not actually bold and it's almost reactionary in in trying to like change the board back to the right the proper buffy thing with a normal big bad and we're gonna we're gonna close it out huge and all this stuff and and, like none of it quite you know none of it quite works because it all feels like repeats like you know spike being crazy and villainous just feels like a repeat of angel being villainous and going to angelus and none of it really really ultimately works on this even though um you know, it's like the pieces, like you said, the pieces could have added up, but it just, it, none of it, none of it connects right. Yeah. Um, although, uh, and before I forget this thing, shout out to the girl that Spike kills, her jacket um, is some truly early 2000s um, <laughs> fashion. Like, definitely go back and check out the jean jacket with the fur collar. It is it is very, very dated and very amazing. Um, I recognized that actress instantly and I had to look her up. Her name is Stacy Scowley uh, and she's done a bunch of stuff. I mean, she's one of those actresses that has popped up in all sorts of, of television shows over the years. But the reason she was so instantly recognizable to me is she had a recurring role on uh, Fresh Off the Boat, which I don't know if that's a show that you ever oh, watched. But I, I won't only a little bit but yeah i know the show yeah she was but i didn't realize she was in it she was on the um the like neighborhood council or whatever that uh they would have meetings with everyone's while anyways she was she was a semi-regular on that show so uh, as soon as she popped up at first i thought why do i know her is she one of the potentials is she a character that comes back so i had to look her up and i was like oh i just know her from other things awesome but yeah other than that it was pretty well, a well-built, well-strung-out sequence. Um, I'm not sure this actually counts as a conversation <laughs> with a dead person, but okay. I'm going to say it is a it's a, a B minus conversation with dead people. I think it's it's an effective scene. There's not really a conversation. I don't know. Maybe I'm being too kind to it, but the, the jacket pulls it up from a C plus <laughs> to a B minus. Excellent. Okay, that's appropriate on Buffy. Fashion has always played an important role on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Absolutely. It, it is. It was always at the forefront of very dated fashion and hairstyles. Yes. Um, that this. So glad they can continue that. Um, all right. So now the big one, uh, Buffy and Holden. Um, so I feel like the character of Holden 
um, played by his name just went out of my head, Jonathan Woodward. The the I I love this because Jonathan Woodward will will immediately become the go to um, single or few episode shitlord of the Whedonverse. He's he's the show killer because here he and I love him and I love all all the roles that he plays. But yeah, he uh, he pops up in the final season of Buffy. Um, granted, it's only the seventh episode, so it's not like he has rung the bell on the end of the series, but still he pops up in the final season. Uh, he plays a very significant role in the final season of angel. And he plays a character in an episode of firefly where, uh, that was the episode they were filming when they actually received the news that the, that firefly had been canceled. Yeah, he that's that's amazing. In fact, that episode didn't actually air, right? That you didn't actually get that episode unless you got the DVD set. Uh, I don't remember what did and didn't or, air. That was the funeral, they, I think, is what it was. I can't remember the yeah, episode. Yeah, or they, or they might have aired it. They did do like a weird sort of like marathon, you know, later. But I think the show actually got pulled before that episode aired. Okay. So um, on top of everything else, although it's a good episode, and I feel weird because I don't know if I've seen this guy outside of. Whedon shows. I don't know if any outside of Mutant Enemy I've ever actually seen this guy, but he's great. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, now I have to look at IMDb and see. Uh, I just remembered I, so many times over the course of this podcast, I've tried to call out the the hat tricks, the Whedon hat tricks. There were three or four actors that popped up on all three. Of course, this is when there were only three Whedon shows, but um, I feel like I've gotten it wrong every time, but uh, I knew instantly that that uh Jonathan Woodward was one of them. He's holding yeah, almost holding almost here nothing. and um oh crap, his name just went out of my head from Knox. Angel Knox, thank Knox you. Knox and Angel and I looked up it's Tracy Smith and Firefly. Okay. After that, he's on almost nothing. He was in the notorious Betty Page. He's in a single episode of NCIS. He was in Drones, which is I think Amber Benson's movie. Oh. Um um if I could be wrong on that, but I think it is a, an episode of deadline. Um, whatever. Um, an episode of a show called unforgettable and an episode of blue buds. And that's it. Wow. That's uh surprising. I, I felt so comfortable knowing who Jonathan Woodward was. I didn't, it didn't even occur to me that he'd never done anything else. Um, I looked up drones. Yes, that is Amber Benson's Amber Benson and Adam Bush co-directed. Yeah. That, yeah. So. so, but sadly, I, mean, I think this guy's phenomenal. I mean, yeah. you know, this, this scene, so we talked about before, like Willow has to carry all of, you know, not that Cassie's bad, but Willow has to carry the entirety of her scene just by the nature of what it is. Um, but Holden owns this sequence. He's a extremely memorable character for someone who's in about 15 minutes of screen time, maybe. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I I have to say, and I, this may shock you, Eric, since you haven't listened to the episodes discussing season seven before this, um, I have been very pleasantly surprised, not only with how strong I feel like season seven started, because my memory was that I didn't care for it, um, but the first four episodes in a row, I was genuinely fond of Buffy Summers, the character, <laughs> which might be the longest stretch of back-to-back episodes uh, certainly in the in the back half of the series uh, where I was like, you know what? I actually like her. Um, then we got some then there was the whole episode where she 
decided she needed to slaughter Anya. Um, and I was like, all right, she, we're, we're right back to me. Not liking <laughs> here's, Buffy. Here's or, the Buffy we know and hate. Exactly. Um, but this scene, you're right. Holden definitely carries it, but this scene, um, I actually do like Buffy. Like I, I, yeah. I, I like the performance she gives and I like, I, I like the interaction that she has with him. So this is, this is actually another, this is maybe like the core thing of like the theme, my theme of like, this being a singular moment of the show being back to what it's phenomenal at, um, even though it doesn't really maintain, not just because of like the content itself, but as a format, this is as prototypical of a Buffy, a, a classic Buffy scene as you can get. You know, she goes into a graveyard to fight a vampire. It's someone she knows, but actually doesn't remember, remembers her, <laughs> but she doesn't remember. Um, and then engages in letting this person psychoanalyze her for the entirety of this thing like it is such a it is exactly the core of what made buffy great this scene could have been in season one is one of those things where it's like you know like you know those type of things where shows will have scenes that sort of explain why the show is great yeah. by like its moment like this is the kind of scene that could have done that um and, i mean yeah and the, so, the 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 thesis or whatever of of welcome to the hellmouth was that uh you know the the blonde girl goes off with the the boy and uh it turns out that she's the monster not the boy or whatever like the the whole subversion of expectations and tropes uh like was baked into the series from the very start and that feels like what this is too yep and and it um and it's also just a really great exploration of where buffy is right now it actually almost saves a basket of not great character decisions for buffy over the past season and a half like it, it digs into them in such a human way that it almost explains them as valid in this, a way that I don't really buy the, the uh, yeah, no, I'm right there with you. The whole superiority complex and you have an inferiority complex about it, that, mm-hmm. that whole thing. And actually I feel like it's, it's Sarah's delivery of the Buffy line where she's talking about the whole, where she's walking through it. And she says, you know, I, I've always felt beneath them. I felt like I didn't deserve their love. I wasn't worthy. Um, but their opinions, you know, whenever they would tell me they love me, that didn't really matter because, you know, their opinions didn't matter because they haven't gone through the stuff that I've gone through. So, you know, they, they can't understand. And she, so she actually walks her way from feeling inferior uh, to, feeling like yeah i've actually always thought i was better than them mm-hmm. it's it's pretty potent and and you know the same thing goes for her talking about her relationship problems with spike before mm-hmm. um although i don't particularly like the i think it's a little revisionist about buffy's relationship with spike in a way that i actually don't buy <laughs> it, it does it does soften it a little more than i would expect her to but yeah yeah, um, and I, you know, I kind of feel like it. It actually, like the thing I, the note, the one note that I didn't love in it was um, her talking about the like Spike relationship the entire time is sort of like pushing her into doing things she didn't want to do, which is definitely not. I don't think that's a great read, and I think it's actually a little ugly of mm-hmm. a read. You know, I think Buffy's like. Um, sort of like run of both like ill-advised um and gross rough sex with with spike is was i i always read that as an actual choice she was in a dark place but it always felt like uh, you know that i realized that like there's obviously like a like rape in the end of the season but up to that point it 
felt consensual yes. like and and not and not unenthusiastically consensual either like it was it was damaged consent but there was kind of damaged consent from both of them so i didn't really read it that way and i don't know if i love that revisionist take on it but other than that her like psychological state about her relationships i thought that all landed really well absolutely um what else do we get here so i i might be reading too much into it but she gives at one point she's got that line um where he says something about so when you you know said you're not connected to people or whatever and she's like i'm connected i'm connected to lots of people that scene you know the the joke of that is the camera pans down to her cell phone which she has dropped as dawn is frantically trying to call her to ask for help showing that well you're not quite as connected as you thought you were you were but i I just uh i wonder if the the fact that she talks about being connected to lots of people is in any way some kind of foreshadowing for how the series ends it it might be and you you know it's interesting because of my i have this thought which is my biggest problem with the scene is that I don't think it really sets up character development for Buffy the rest of the series. It's another isolated moment, generally, but that's actually an interesting an interesting thing about foreshadowing the end, which actually might be one of the few threads that kind of carries forward for Buffy from here. Because otherwise, I don't feel like this represents actual character development for Buffy, um, even though it kind of feels like that's what's happening in the moment. Yeah. Um, but it, but it, this scene is also just like wickedly funny. I mean, the the like the sired joke about like him not knowing the term and then trying to remember it later um, is just really classic Buffy humor. Um, it's it, it's just so witty and perfect the entire time through it. Yeah. Um, actually, what my maybe my favorite my favorite joke in this entire run this scene is um, right before she's gonna kill him with the stake and then he like makes a comment like and stops her and then they're talking and he's like and by the way i totally had a move ready to block yeah. that <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah that's good stuff all his stuff is all great talking about there were so many times where he was like um oh, what was it i have this somewhere uh i just think you're in some pain here which i do kind of enjoy because i'm evil now but you should just ease up on yourself <laughs> it's so many little throwaway lines like that um uh i don't remember buffy i'm here to kill you not judge you that was another good one yep yep the whole oh my god when he says oh my god she's like oh your god what oh well you know not my god because i defy him and all his works but oh does he exist is there word on that by the way (laughs) nothing solid that was all great he just had he there was great chemistry between the two of them like comedic chemistry between the two it's it's one of those times, you know, and I'm I'm glad that that um you know Mutant Enemy brought him back a number of times after this because it's one of those times where you deeply regret casting someone in that role, you know. Like <laughs> I I know that's one of those things you never know. Like I'm sure his audition was great, but I'm sure when they auditioned they didn't think like, oh yeah, yeah this is gonna be great. But you could just feel everyone on set while they're filming him thinking, shit, why is he not in the rest of this season? <laughs> yeah. Um, and then they brought him back for for Angel, and he got a good run. Although um, he executes the most my 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 most hated plot point of season five of Angel. Yeah. Um, but and and it's probably you know Knox is probably his least good role overall. Yeah, he's not. Knox is, he's not nearly as lovable in that. Yeah, I mean he's memorably screwed up in Firefly. His his turn in that is like another like 
kind of like Holden um, double double edged sword kind of thing where you really like him but also kind of hate him because he sucks. Yeah. Um, whereas Knox is really just there to to um, make you hate him um, by by uh, taking by like getting um, you know Fred's affections when you're hoping she's going to be with Wesley and then literally leading to her annihilation. But um, but in this this is this is probably the best role he got um and he just he, he just slays it sorry had to go there um but de- definitely a classic a classic scene the fight the fighting stuff is good it's it's perfectly paced too in the way it like occasionally drops in the fights to keep the the action mm-hmm. moving mm-hmm. um and then stopping it for more conversation um oh you know that other line that was one of a classic one which was um can we be nemeses and she's like is that how you say that yeah <laughs> uh Good stuff. Um, Good stuff. He also, he also might, this probably isn't true, but it just, at at a certain point I thought to myself, is this the most we've gotten uh, like a guest actor in vamp makeup talking like on camera? Because he did a really good job of working with that makeup and talking around those teeth. He did. You're right. Because usually it's just, it's just guys kind of like doing villain voice through the teeth. Um, But he's actually, he, he basically sounds like himself the the whole time um oh like i just keep remembering like funny funny bits from this but the like him talking about who he had person he had a crush on and then like i'm definitely gonna look her up she was very biteable <laughs> yeah yeah um, um yeah it, this is this is definitely like you know i was looking forward to getting back to this um this scene specifically um and you, but you made a comment that i want you to return to which is that you were talking about is the first controlling him is this is this oh, the yeah. first as well yeah um which i can't i can't decide if that makes sense to me because obviously he is again don't remember how stuff pays out the rest of the season but he obviously has some sort of influence over spike and i don't remember how much that is explained or or what it turns out to be but for some reason this is the first time it's ever occurred to me to think that he like i guess i just thought this was a coincidental thing like like her conversation with holden isn't directly related to the first but I mean, it is at least in the sense that uh, Spike sired him and there must have been a reason why the first would have Spike do that with this particular character. So in that regards, at least it was planned. But is he actually like an agent of the first? So my take actually to give you to, to talk to the Spike thing a little bit, as I recall, Spike's programming is much more tied to his guilt and having a soul that basically the first has just been appearing to him. Um, and literally, literally psychologically programming him. If I remember properly, the first doesn't have any mystical control over Spike, but has done, you know, that Spike is basically was like so racked with guilt upon getting his soul, um, that he was like, you know, in, in, cause I think Angel had a period like this when he got his soul where he was basically crazy for a while. Um, and I think Spike has sort of a similar thing. And this kind of goes back to like, I feel like they're repeating Angel like a little bit, but, um, but he has like I and I think that because he literally has a trigger song that does it. So it's not like mystical control. It's actually like sleeper agent. Okay. Um, in fact, the next episode is called Sleeper, literally. Right. Right. Um, and um, so I think it's I think it's just that. So I don't think the first has like direct direct control over over them. Um, but that said, I I think your take on um, the first having Spike 
take this person because Buffy knew him might have been intentional. You know, not knowing what would happen and maybe not being able to predict it, but this guy recognized Buffy as soon as they were fighting. Um, and the first seems to know people pretty well. Mm-hmm. So I could definitely see the first wanting wanting him there as like, eh, this might screw with her a little bit. We'll yeah. see what happens. Yeah. Uh, okay. That makes sense. I can't, I can't remember if this becomes a thing, but so in the at the end of the first episode of the season, we get the I mean, it's still not revealed that it's the first evil, but we get the great scene where the first morphs through cycles through all the big bads from the previous seasons um, as he's talking to Spike on the ground, which gives James Marsters his first chance to act on camera with the mayor and the master. Both of those. That was the only scene Spike ever shared with either of those two characters. Um, but in that, you know, he, the final form that he took at the very end of that episode was Buffy herself because she's died. So technically by the rules, he can appear as Buffy. Does that mean that he also has access to all of her memories and all that? I, you know, I, I think so because I think that, I mean, so this is, I mean, I don't know if I'll get a chance to talk about this again, since I don't know if I'll be back for anything in season seven, but you know, one of my problems with the first going forward is that the first never uses its ability to become Buffy to do anything other than irritate people by becoming Buffy. I think that's it, like, what I was going to ask. That was <laughs> it, it tries to it tries to trick people once or twice. But like, you know, I, I remember one of my complaints is that, like, there's a lot of times where there's chaotic battles and it would be really easy for the first to show up as Buffy in the middle of a chaotic battle and, like, give false orders. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, just really become a destructive force, and you never really know whether it's really Buffy you're talking to. But if I remember properly, for the most part, all the – like, 80% of the first becoming Buffy is just doing, like, mocking Buffy voice, basically. Hmm. Um, and so, yes, I think the first can, can – um, mimic Buffy in better ways, but I don't think the show uses that. It, it, I don't want to say at all, but not very much and not very well. Okay, yeah, that, that's where I was going with that. The, the idea that if he if he does have access to like Buffy's memories, or at least her memories up to the point where she died, then it seems like there was a lot more that he could have <laughs> been doing. Well, um, one thing I can't remember if the first can do, and I'm curious if this came up in the first couple of episodes. Can the first become any vampire? Like, basically, like, can they can it take the form of anyone who, like, is a living vampire now, but is I don't technically dead. I don't think that's been addressed up to this point. I, don't, I okay. we haven't we haven't seen that. Okay, so. just just curious, just curious. But yeah, this is this is a strong sequence. I'd say maybe the strong. I'm actually going to go out on a limb and say this is the best the best scene of season seven that it never gets better than this the rest of the season it's probably downhill from here but wow. um this scene is as good as season seven gets and would fit into the best of buffy scenes excellent excellent i mean i'm not looking forward to this being the high point of the season but <laughs> <laughs> i think i think i had already suspected that um so i i'm gonna have to give this a solid a plus as a conversation with a dead person. Excellent. Yes, I agree. I haven't, uh, I didn't rate uh, virtually anything else, but I agree. A plus for this one. If, <laughs> if only because Holden, man, it just, it stuns me that Jonathan Woodward, uh, could, could be so just charismatic in this role. And, uh, and in some ways in his other two Whedon roles, uh, and then basically not do anything. 
afterwards. Yeah. Like, why doesn't this man have his own series? Yeah, it's a bummer. Well, I'm depressed about that. Um, okay. So the last point I had uh, to take us out was a little bit of trivia that probably would have, I, I, I probably would have recognized this and gone to look it up, but I just stumbled upon the trivia that this is the only episode of the entire series that is 100% Xanderless. Is it? That's that's what I found. That's the claim that's being made. If anybody knows differently, please let me know. But uh, yeah, the, I, what I saw was that this is the only episode of the entire series where Xander does not appear once, excluding the previously on, obviously. But Oh my God. Which would mean, for all the crap that I have given Xander Harris over the course of this podcast, this podcast was named after the only Xanderless episode. Wow. That's a that's the ultimate knock on Xander. <laughs> totally, totally dismissed as a character now on this podcast. Oh, man. Um, where did I read? I can't remember if it was on the Wikipedia page for this or what, but I read somewhere that they that the writers at one point had plans for Anya and Xander to be included in this. Yes. There was going to be one of the ideas for this was I was reading was Xander. If they got, it was Jesse yes. was, um, Belfour, Eric Belfour's character, Jesse. Yeah. Um, yeah. A conversation between Xander and him. Okay. And then, uh, yeah, that's what it was. And then they had considered bringing uh, Callie Roca as Halfrick back to haunt Anya. That would not have worked. I'm glad they didn't do that. I can't yeah. imagine that have been a very interesting conversation. Yeah. Um, Xander and Jesse could have actually been interesting just for the historical thing. Although, I, I, at this point, I mean, th- this is the sad thing with Xander. Xander has no point in the show at this point, as evidenced by the fact that they basically replace him with Andrew. Um, I think the only thing Xander has to do this season is get his eye ripped out <laughs> by at the end. That's yes. about it. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm not surprised they didn't use him for this. All right. So anything else that, uh, we didn't cover? No, I, I think that's it. This was, this is a real joy to come back to. It's, uh, one of my favorite episodes of Buffy and it was, I, you know, it, I gotta say it, it, it holds up, um, you know, surprisingly, surprisingly well. Yeah, this was good. This is really good. Um, and again, I almost feel guilty that we don't have you scheduled for anything else in season seven, <laughs> but um, maybe I'm trying, I'm trying to, I'm trying to gather multiple guests t- to join me for the final episode, the finale episode. And uh, it, if a slot is available in that, would you be interested? I would be very interested. Yes. Okay. We'll see if we can make that work then. Um, okay. In the meantime, uh, thank you very much for joining me for this one for this, the most important episode of the entire podcast. Yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad to be here for the eponymous episode. Very good. (laughs) Yes. Uh, You want to let the people at home know how they can stalk you online? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Salon. That's S-A-A-L-O-N. Paul mentioned my long forthcoming book, uh, Mimesis. Um, I actually have some uh, exclusive news, which is that my um, cover, the cover art that I've been waiting for for a little bit, um, is done and in as of a couple of weeks ago. Um, And I am finishing the actual graphic layout of the cover now for it nice. uh the cover art is is stunningly gorgeous um and i am really excited so i don't have a release date just yet 
but um, I would say within the next six months is extremely likely. Sweet. Sweet. Something to look forward to in this garbage fire of a year. Indeed. A little, <laughs> little bit of joy. Yes. Um, okay. Uh, and like I've said on... Well, maybe on this podcast, who knows if we can tie it into Buffy or Angel somehow, but certainly on Gobbledy Geek, we're going to have to have you back to talk about Mimesis when that comes out. I'd love to. I'd love to. All right. And uh, thank you at home for listening, for playing along with us. Um, you can find links to this and all of our past episodes at the website conswithdead.com, um, or you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, um, although... I guess podcasts are starting to drift away from iTunes, but for the time being, it is available on iTunes. Uh, if you go there, please rate us or write us a review that helps find, helps us find new listeners. Um, and if you have questions for me or for any of my guests, or if you'd just like to share your thoughts on anything we've discussed, please join the conversation. You can drop us an email at conswithdead at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at conswithdead or reach out to us on Facebook. Uh, the name is conswithdead. Uh, next week, I think I can confidently say week instead of sometime next month. Next week, um, fan and amateur Buffyologist Tammy Anderson is joining me for the first time. I'm managing to, to pull her out of her shell and get her on the mic. She's going to join me to discuss episode 708 Sleeper, which, uh, Eric, you've made me dread <laughs> that episode. <laughs> I forgot what it was and you've reminded me and dag nabbit uh and 709 never leave me which i have no memory at all of what that is so uh until then gur arg everybody gur arg